0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. If you have any questions about our message time today, I would encourage you to send a text to 307 316 2023. And then each Tuesday, we go on Facebook. Do the Facebook live video, and then that gets posted to our church website media page a little bit later that day. Uh, one of the things that we do in our in our small group, we go through the we use the study guide that we provide for the series, and and we go through the questions that are in the bulletin. And part of that is when there's a text that it, that the study guide tells us to read, we we read it, and before we ask any questions. That, that are in the study guide, I ask our group if they have any questions. And this past Tuesday night, our text was, was last week's text, which is from Exodus chapter 3, where Moses encounters uh, God through the burning bush, and God introduces himself as the God, of, as the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and one of the people in our, in our small group, I love it when this happens, one of the people in our small group is not a Christian, and she says, okay, wait a minute. Who, who are these people? Who is, who is Abraham, and who is Isaac, and who is Jacob? Like, who, who are these people? So, for those of us with a church background, it's, it can be really easy for us to kind of blow through the text. And and I I acknowledge that I even do that on a Sunday morning. We read through this the Bible, we read through scripture and we just because we are familiar with it or we tend to be more familiar with it, we don't think of the people who have no idea what we are uh, what we are talking about. And I would say that there's a pretty good chance that that there are some people in this room, like when we read that last week, maybe you asked that question: well, Who who are these people? What does what does this have to do with the story of Moses? What does this have to do with the Israelites in Egypt? And what does this have to do with the Ten Commandments? And like why are like why are these things written here? So so what I'm going to do today, very quickly, believe it or not, very quickly, I'm going to do what I did on. Tuesday night in our small group, and I'm going to cover about 60 chapters of the book of Genesis into Exodus in about eight minutes, okay? But the only way for me to do that is to skip vast portions of this story. So if you're familiar with the story of Genesis and Exodus, I'm probably going to skip some things that you think are really, really, really important, and I'm probably going to talk about some things that maybe you don't think are all of that important. And what I would encourage you to do, I know a few weeks ago, I, I said, hey, you should really read Psalm 119 each week during this series. And I'm going to encourage you this week, you should really read Genesis through Exodus 20. Because there is so much going on in Scripture, there's so much going on in this story that, that we just ignore, that we just blow past and we don't have a frame of reference for it. So where I'm going to start is not at Genesis 1. I'm going to start at Genesis chapter 11, okay? So that is right after that's right after the flood, that's right after Noah and the ark at the end of Genesis chapter 11. So here's the here's about the 8-minute run through, right? So God comes to Abraham, Abram was his name first, and he tells him that he's going to make him the father of many nations, and he must go to the land that God will show him. Today, we call that land Canaan. About a hundred years later, Abraham, his name has been changed at this point, has a son whom he names Isaac. Few years after that more than a few because Isaac had to grow up and become an adult first. After Isaac becomes an adult, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And what happens in this part of Genesis is Jacob steals Esau's birthright, has a fight with God, and God gives Jacob a new name. That name is Israel. Jacob later then has 12 sons. And for those of you that maybe know your your Bible history, this is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel from. So if you've ever wondered where we get 12 tribes of Israel, they're the 12 sons of Jacob, also known as Israel. And by this point, we've covered about 200 years of history between the calling of Abram to Jacob and his 12 sons. One of those 12 sons is a guy by the name, name of Joseph, and he has a technicolor dream coat, and it was red, and it was yellow, and it was green, and it was brown. You probably have heard that one before. And, J- and Joseph was the ultimate younger brother. He was his father's favorite, and he was a tattletale. And he also had visions that all of his brothers were going to bow down to him. He had two visions where his brothers were going to bow down to him. Well, eventually they got sick of all of this tattletaling and all of this hearing that they were going to bow down to him, so they decided that they were going to kill Joseph. But one of these brothers has a change of heart, and instead of killing him, they sell him to a passing caravan of traders. The brothers return home to their father Jacob with the aforementioned Dream coat and say, Look, Dad, we found this in the desert. It's covered with blood. An animal killed our brother, your son, Joseph. So then Jacob assumes Joseph is dead. Joseph eventually ends up in Egypt. And after a series of, of ups and downs, he ends up interpreting the dreams of the Pharaoh. One of, which, one of which is a prediction of a coming seven-year famine. Well, Pharaoh decides then that Joseph is the right person to, to manage all of this food and manage what they're going to do as they prep for this famine. So over the next seven years, grain is sown and grown and harvested and stored and stored and stored and stored until eventually, seven years later, the famine hits. Seven years of famine after seven years of plenty. And not only are people coming from all over Egypt to get this food, but people are coming from all over the Middle East to get this food, including Joseph's brothers. They didn't recognize him, but of course he knows who they are. Joseph outs himself to his brother's And they're scared to death. And I just want to pause here for a moment in this story. What would you do if you were Joseph? I imagine that some of us, in fact, I know, some of us spend our entire lives anticipating the revenge that we are going to get on the people that have hurt us. There are some of us that are living for a moment like this where we're going to send our brothers away, where we're going to maybe have our brothers put into prison. And what we do is we spend all of this time plotting and scheming to pay back those who have hurt us. But what does Joseph do? What does Joseph say? He says this, This was all God's plan. So go and get Dad and bring him to Egypt. They do, and over the next several chapters, now we're we're like pushing through the end of the book of Genesis, we have this amazing scene of reunion and redemption and promise, and the book of Genesis ends with Jacob dying, and a few years later, after Joseph has sons and starts to have descendants, Joseph dies, but not before he tells his descendants that a day will come that God will will hear the cries of his people and he will deliver them out of Egypt and they will all go back to the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when we turn the page, and this is is like one of those really important things to grasp. When When we turn the page from... From the end of Genesis to Exodus, like when we, when we do this, one of the things that, that we have to know is more than 400 years of history passes between the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. The Pharaohs have forgotten about Joseph and all his descendants, and those descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob... They now number into the hundreds of thousands from just the 70 that entered into Egypt 400 years earlier. Pharaoh has them enslaved, and they keep having children, so he decides that the firstborn male must be killed, must be cast into the Nile. And in a, I think it's quite ironic that Pharaoh wants them cast into the Nile. I think it's ironic that one of these people places her son in the Nile, in a basket. Into the same Nile that that the others are being cast into, this one is placed into a basket, only to be discovered by, by the daughter of Pharaoh, who calls him Moses, which sounds like the Hebrew word for to lift out. She looks for a Hebrew woman to be his nursemaid, and this nursemaid happens to be Moses' own mother. And in my mind, I imagine that as this, as Moses' mother raised him and cared for him, she was telling him the story, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the oral traditions that had been passed down for hundreds and hundreds of years. Well Moses grows up with the power and prestige afforded him of the pharaoh's son. But at the same time he knows he doesn't really belong there because of what he's been told from his mother. And one day he goes out to be with his real people the Hebrews. And we've covered this a couple weeks ago, but he goes out to he goes out to be with his people and he sees an Egyptian beating one of the slaves. And he Kills the Egyptian and buries his body in the sand. And the next day, he goes out again to see his people. And this time, there are two Hebrews fighting. And he stops them from fighting. And one of them asks the question, and this is also ironic one of them asks the question that Moses will hear throughout the rest of his life Who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me too? So Moses flees his people, both the Egyptians and the Hebrews, and he lands in a place called Midian where he becomes a sheep herder. He marries and has a son. And the people that he left behind, they cry out to God. And because of his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the time had come. Many years later, Moses is out with his father-in-law's flock at this mountain called Oreb, which is also called Mount Sinai. And there he sees a bush on fire, but it's not being consumed by this fire. And a voice calls out to him, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. In the God of Jacob. And what Exodus tells us next is that, that Moses was afraid, so he hid his face. And as I, as I reread all of these chapters this week, I wonder what it must have been like for Moses to be confronted with the reality of God in that moment. To be confronted with the eternal God who has orchestrated 600 years of history to culminate in this one moment. All of the things that Moses had heard was here and it was present and it was happening. And this God is now talking to you. It's this God, Yahweh, who's going to destroy the gods of Egypt with plagues, and He's going to part the Red Sea, which allows the Hebrew people to walk through it. And this same God will bring, years later, these people to this exact same mountain. Do you see how this all comes together in one story? When God meets his people on Sinai, it is this Sinai. It is this place where Moses met God in the burning bush. And this is what God tells his people. I'm Yahweh, and I rescued my people from the land of Egypt where you were enslaved. Don't place any other gods before me. Don't make any idols of me. When you lift up my name, don't misuse it. And then today's text, Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So what do we, so what do, we do with this text if you look in your bulletin, you'll see sort of an outline. We're going to talk about a couple different things. We're going to see the role of the Sabbath to the Old Testament people, the people who received it from God. Right, that's where we need to start. We don't jump to us and ask what we are supposed to do with the Sabbath. We start with the people who received it first. So, so what did the Sabbath mean for them? We're going to talk about the role of the Sabbath during the New Testament time. We're going to talk about what Jesus did on the Sabbath. We're going to talk about how the Sabbath helped the gospel grow after Jesus was resurrected. We're going to talk about Jesus as our Sabbath rest. And lastly, we're going to talk about how to all of these things like inform our idea of Sabbath and what we are supposed to do. Well, in the Old Testament, Sabbath was a day of rest. And Sabbath was Saturday. So, so just right out of the gate, the day that we call Saturday was the Sabbath. And we see that it was a day of rest. That's here in the text that I read from Exodus chapter 20. And when it is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, which we're going to get to in a moment, it's repeated there with a slight variation. And here's, here's, the, here's all of this text, don't work. This is not just for you and your family, though. This is for your servants and your slaves and even your animals. You are called to rest. And what I love about this text is there's an element of justice in this text. What God is not telling his people to do is take the day off and let all your servants and slaves continue to work. Everyone gets a rest on the Sabbath. Why? Why does this day matter? Well, here in the text, it tells us that resting is a memorial to creation. God created everything in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. And he didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't rest because Stranger Things was coming on Netflix that day. God rested because he wanted to be an example for humanity. God was resting so that we would see that he rested and we would be obedient to it. He set this day apart for us. And then there's a slight variation in Deuteronomy 5. This is verse 15. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong arm Strong hand and powerful arm, that is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. So resting in God's mindset and God's communication is not just a memorial to creation. Resting is a reminder of the identity of the Jewish people. And we've talked a little bit about that each and every week. I just spent the first 10 minutes of our time today, talking about the people's identity. And what God is doing with rest is he's reminding them of who they are. We ought to see hints of our own identity here. Their past identities were rooted in being slaves. And for us, our past identities as Christians ought to be rooted in sinners. And now we have been freed from that. And what God is telling his people is their identity is found in this promise, in who they were as descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this concept of identity for us is a matter of belonging. It's who we are. And as I look at 2019, I see people who need to know who they are. And not just non-believers, but believers alike. We need to know our identity. We need to know who we are, who God says we are. And God's people will always have a rest. We've always been called to rest. Because as Shane talked about earlier, when we rest, when we take that time away from our work and we actually rest, then we are trusting in God to provide for us. There was a day for the Jews, and it wasn't too much before Exodus chapter 20, where they didn't have a day of rest, where they worked and slaved every single day. All they did was work. And this is our tendency, isn't it? Isn't it our tendency when we take a day off I have to check my email. I have to wonder what's going on at work. I have to think about what next week's schedule looks like. I have to think about and plan all of the things I have to do. And our tendency is to bring about our own success. We have the inability to to rest. And what God is calling us to do is to rest. God is telling his people that that their relationship is not going to be like the one they had previously. And God has just put together 600 years of history and he didn't do that so they could just go and be slaves again. But he did this so they would have rest. So it wasn't just a day of rest, that was a day of the sacred assembly. In Leviticus 23, 3, it says that the Sabbath is a day to be set aside for the sacred assembly, for the holy assembly. And these were days of festivals and celebrations and gifts and offerings to God. But they were meals And they were proclamations of God's goodness and God's faithfulness as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Sabbath in the Old Testament was was a sign of the covenant. This is from Exodus 31. When his people, when God's people, the Israelites, when they honored the Sabbath, When they did what they were supposed to do by resting, they were demonstrating that he was their God. They were demonstrating that they were going to be obedient to him out of love. They were acting acting in faith that they accepted his rule, that they accepted his reign, that they accepted his relationship. What was the role of the Sabbath during the New Testament times? Sometimes it can be easy for us to forget then when we flip the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Because as Christians, like we have a lot of preconceived ideas of what that looked like. There was also a pretty big time gap between those two things. But truthfully, other than the Romans ruling the, the Holy Land during the time of the New Testament... For many intents and purposes, the practices of the New Testament era Jews were very similar to that of the Old Testament era Jews. So they rested and they gathered together at the temple or in the synagogue. This was pretty similar. But what did Jesus do on the Sabbath? We know from the gospel accounts that Jesus would regularly teach in the synagogues. Luke 4 tells us that he read from Isaiah. This is what Jesus read one Sabbath in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. In the study guide that we have created this week, you can look at all of the different things that Jesus did on the Sabbath. And I would encourage you to do that. We've given this tool for you so that you can dig into the Bible on your own because you have the power to do that and discover just what Jesus did on the Sabbath. And here's here's the summary. Throughout Jesus' activities on the Sabbath, what we learn is that the Sabbath is a day of doing good. It is not a day of ritualistic duty. Anne has told me this story several times. She grew up, she grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, and Sunday at her home um, was, was pretty strict when she was growing up. There were a whole lot of things you didn't do on a Sunday and like three things like you could do on a Sunday. Well they had a they had a neighbor who was a who was also a farmer like Ann's dad who was who was very sick and it was harvest time. So many of the surrounding farmers decided that what they were going to do on Sunday is they were all going to take their combines over to this guy's house and they were going to combine his field. And Ann's dad didn't go because it was the Sabbath. And years later, he would share that how much he regretted that. As Christians, it is so easy for us to stick to the ritual of our religion. And that's not what God is calling for us to do. We are called to do good on the Sabbath. I would encourage you to look for ways to do good on the Sabbath and not live this regimented lifestyle as I'm not going to go here and I'm not going to go there and I'm not going to go there. But are you doing good? Well, how did, how did the Sabbath help the spread of the gospel? If you were to read through the book of Acts, which we just did a few years ago, if you were to read through the book of Acts, what you would see is oftentimes the disciples and the apostles, they would go into a town, and the first thing they would do is they would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath because the Jews had already gathered. And at this point in history christianity was was kind of a, a breakoff sect of Judaism. They were still considered Jews. The only difference being they believed that the Messiah had come so So when these Christians, when these apostles and disciples would show up at the synagogue, they would oftentimes be allowed to preach. they would be allowed to teach so all throughout the Holy Land and Asia Minor were these little Synagogues were these little places that were ready-made for the spread of the gospel. So what they would go and talk about, of course, is Jesus. You can read this in the book of Acts. And even though, even though Christians early on also began to meet on the first day of the week, because that was the day that Jesus was resurrected, that never translated over to Sunday being the Christian Sabbath. And I know I've said that twice, That's because it's important. This is not the Sabbath day. We like this is not the Christian Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday. We don't gather on the Sabbath, we gather on Sunday. And eventually the Sabbath, Saturday, fell by the wayside as the as the separation and the gap between the Christians and the Jews began to grow due to Gentile conversion. And then in 70, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, so there was no temple to gather at. There was no temple to worship at on the Sabbath. And since these Christians weren't Jews, they were Gentiles, they didn't follow the Old Testament rules and laws. They weren't bound by the Sabbath because you can't have temple worship without the temple. wonder if some of us came today expecting to hear the answer to the question, yeah, but what am I allowed to do on Sunday? I won't ask for a show of hands. But maybe some of us came with that question. That would be a logical question. We're going to talk about the Sabbath, so what am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? And I think those are completely the wrong questions for us to ask. But interestingly, they take us to the point that needs to be dealt with. When Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees on this question, Jesus said the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, not the people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. What are the needs of the people? When we interact with people who aren't Christians, and when we interact with Christians for that matter, What are are the needs? The needs are rest. Like virtually every other law in the Old Testament, Jesus did not come to abolish. He came to fulfill. And when we went through the book of Hebrews last year, we talked about how the elements of the tabernacle and the temple, they all pointed to something else. They all pointed to Jesus. They were the shadow of the future of a reality that was fulfilled by Jesus. And every single one of those things was fulfilled by him. I'm going to read from Hebrews 4, 1 to 16. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this, is good, for this good news, that God has prepared this rest, has been announced to us just as it was to them. Here, the author of Hebrews is talking about the Jews in the Old Testament. And this rest he's talking about, he's saying this was, this was proclaimed to our ancestors. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, In my anger I took an oath that they will never enter my place of rest, even though this rest has been ready since he made the world. We know that it's ready because of the place in scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day God rested from all his work. But in the other passage God said they will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there's a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best for entering that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fail. For the word of God is alive and powerful It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. So then, since we have a great high priest who's entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we'll find the grace to help us when we need it most. What Hebrews 4 is telling us is that God's people were invited into his rest. They were invited in to participate and to partake in the rest that God was offering them. But they were never able to do it because of the hardness of their hearts. And even though they fulfilled the letter of the law, even though they took the Sabbath off and gave their animals a rest and gave their servants a rest and didn't walk more than a mile from their house and didn't pluck the heads off of grain, and didn't do all of these other things that they weren't allowed to do. They were unable to enter into that rest. And we need rest. We need a day of rest. A week that's filled with nothing but self-willed work doesn't honor God Because as believers, as Christians, we're called to rely upon him in all things. How will we ever learn to trust him if the thoughts that are running through our minds are I can't afford my lifestyle if I don't work every day. I can't afford my lifestyle if I don't do this or if I don't do that. And if If any of us think that our employers can't make it without us for a day or two, then the rest that you need is from your selfishness and from your own narcissism. God is calling his people to rest. God is calling his people to rest. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. God has given us a day of rest, a day of trust. And I don't think that the, that the rest that God is calling us to is necessarily from, from the store we work at or the hospital we work at. Ultimately, this rest that God is calling us to, this labor that he wants us to rest from, is for us to stop striving to earn our salvation. The true rest that God is calling us into is to stop working for our salvation. The rest that God is calling us into is to stop thinking that if I just do my my Bible reading plan today, that God will be happier with me today than he was yesterday. See, God wants us to rest. He wants us to rest in him and this is what it means for us as individuals to find Jesus as our Sabbath rest. To stop our strivings, to stop our efforts. And rest because he has done the work. What, what is it going to take for you to rest? What is it going to take for you to stop, for me To stop finding joy and happiness and fulfillment in every other thing but Jesus. Because I'm not going to find it. The reality of us, for us, is Hebrews 10, 14 to 18. And I just read those verses. Jesus entered into heaven. So what we are called to do is to believe what we say we believe to firmly believe that. He understands our weaknesses, so we get to go to him boldly. And we get to rest. And when we rest in him, we receive mercy and trust and hope and grace because that's what he wants to give us. And we only get those things, we only receive those things when we rest. So if if we're not feeling Hopeful, and we're not feeling like we're receiving God's mercy, if we, throughout the week, if we are wondering if we are good enough for our salvation, if we're living in this space of, I hope I don't do these things wrong because I'm going to fall out of favor with God, it's not what God has for you. God wants you to rest in him. And when we rest and when we trust we're able to do the most good. We're able to live in ways that honor him and glorify him because we are resting in his work, not our strivings. What does this mean for for us as as a church body? What does this mean for Westway? Well, remember, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. So we are not gathered on the Sabbath. We're not gathered on the Sabbath. The early church gathered on the first day of the week because that was the day that Jesus arose. So that's why we gather on Sunday. We live in an age where church attendance has become a non-priority. And I think as Christians, as the church, we kind of have to wrestle with this. We have to figure out, like, try, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to lament and complain about it. That's typically what I see: is we lament and complain that people aren't coming to church more often. Well, early in American history, non attendance at church became punishable by law, and like that didn't work. Okay, that did not have the desired effect. So, because that didn't work, then then the good church people of the early Uh, American continent decided they would get together and they would close everything on Sunday, right? So if you didn't go to church on Sunday, you couldn't do anything on Sunday. And for maybe some of us, we're like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. It's a terrible idea. It's not going to work, okay? During the Industrial Revolution, when many people were working six days a week, put yourself... Yourself in the in the shoes of someone who works in a coal mine. And you're working six days a week, and then it's Sunday because you get the day off, right? And the only thing you can do is go to church. That's all you can do, and you're not allowed to wash your clothes on Sunday. You're not allowed to have fun on Sunday. And I think what happened is church became something we had to do rather than something we get to do. Joy Davidman asks this, When we gather, when the church gathers, what, what do we do? Do we make it unpleasant Do we make it restrictive? Do we make it boring? Or do we make it joyous? And the we is not the staff, just for the record. The we that she is talking about is not the staff. Like, we're going to get together and figure out a way how to make this joyous so everyone wants to be at. No, see, the we is the church. And since this building isn't church, you are the church. So, when you gather together, are you making this unpleasant and restrictive and boring? Or are you making it joyous? She continues, do we want to make church as much as possible like hell or like heaven? What do we do? church? How do we recapture Sunday? I think if the only thing that matters to us is people here on a Sunday morning, we will never recapture church. If our goal is to just have every seat filled, we won't recapture church, which is why God is who matters How can we honor God when we gather? Yes, we teach, and we sing, and we pray, and we take communion, and we give offering. But what if we enjoyed each other's company? What if when, we, when our time is dismissed, what if we don't just run out to our car and leave, but we enjoy one another? What if in two weeks on VBS Weekend, For those of you who have already decided that you're not going to come on VBS weekend because it's just going to be a bunch of kids and families, like what if you set that aside for yourself and you came to engage people in relationship? Like what if you did that? What if you came and you tolerated the VBS slideshow? And you went into the gym where I know it's going to be a thousand degrees and there's going to be four million kids running around in there and it's going to be loud and you're not going to want to be in there. But see, that's, that's what being joyous looks like for us. This church, Westway Christian Church, is like every other church. It rises and it falls on the people who make it. It's on us. If this is a miserable place, like, we all own that as a church body. If we want people to fall in love with Jesus, we have to demonstrate that, that what he does in us doesn't just stay in here, but it goes out of this place. So when our neighbors need help on Sunday, like, we're going to go help them. We're going to do good. We're going to be Jesus. This requires for us to rest in Jesus' work and be satisfied and find satisfaction in what he has done. This is what it means to have a Sabbath rest, is to rest fully in him and trust in him and be glad and joyous in him. Let's pray. Father, one of the hardest things that we can do in our culture is to be silent. God, help us to find satisfaction in what your son Jesus has done. Help us to find rest in him. Help us to be givers of rest to other people. We come into contact with people every day who just need rest. Who just need mercy and who need grace and who need hope. And as much as we receive rest from you, we can give this rest to others. Help the people that we come into contact with this week experience us as givers of rest. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.